0: going to be studying about the kings, the kings of Israel, and then eventually we'll study about the divided kingdom when Israel and Judah were separated, and and uh, the, the capital of uh, the northern kingdom, Israel, was Samaria, and the capital of the southern kingdom, Judah, was Jerusalem, and we're going to talk about that and the different kings, but we thought in order to get into the kings, we ought to start in the very beginning, which is before before there was a king as such, and I called this to our attention last week, we had a sort of an introduction. In my Bible it says the first book of Samuel, otherwise called the first book of the kings. You may not have ever noticed that, the first book of the kings in your Bible, but most Bibles had it. I, I went through about a dozen different Bibles I have on my bookshelf, and about 75 or 80% of them would have that. Titled, the first book of the Kings how many of you have that in your Bible let me see your hand so I'd say here maybe half of us okay so really this is the story about Elkanah and Hannah and this, as we are introduced into 1st Samuel which will eventually lead to the birth of Samuel who would become such a key figure in the Old Testament because he would be the one that God would direct to the first king, which was Saul, the son of Kish. And then, of course, Saul had his failures. We'll study about all of that. And then David became the successor to the kingdom. But it all starts with this, with Elkanah and Hannah, their family. But the thing that I just want to mention as we get into it, long so so you'll remember... That whenever Israel started requesting a king, God said, "I don't want you to have a king. I want to be your king," but you don't want me to be your king, so He gave him. He chose Saul as the first king, but but before before Saul, before Samuel, God we see God working His plan out, and He's going to raise up through Elkanah and Hannah one of the greatest leaders of all time. And of course, uh, just kind of in the way of introduction, um, this is the way God is. Sometimes when we can't see God working, which was the case with Elkanah and Hannah because they could not have a child. She couldn't bear children. And she we'll get to this in a moment. She was agonizing over the fact that she was barren. But long before they ever even had a child. When they were living in this great valley of inability to have children, God was working a plan out that he was going to give them one of the most important men who ever walked this planet. And that's Samuel, who was an outstanding leader. So we see, so if you just back away, you know, and look at it from a distance, you see the handiwork of God, the providence of God. And you know what? God is working a lot of what times in ways that we cannot see we don't know we don't understand why is this happening to me and yet yet when you when you back off and look at it, it look like they say you know hindsight's twenty twenty. when you look back and look at it you see that God was working all the time in his own way so so we're going to go through this lesson and um, and then we'll have some time hopefully at the end for some questions and discussion Let's let's read the first couple of verses in verse 1 of 1 Samuel chapter 1. 1. Now there was a certain man of Ramath M. Zophim of Mount Ephraim. And his name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zoph. These are all great names, by the way, Tohu, Zuf. And he was an Ephrathite, and he had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and name of the other, Peninnah, and Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. So, you know, I don't want to read more into this than there is, but I love the language of verse 1 when it says, now there was a certain man it wasn't just any man this was God's man a certain man the man that God was going to use in a great way as a part of his plan we will we, we'll see in a moment that this was a very godly family it tells us in verse 1 they were of Mount Ephraim uh, and it also tells us that he was in verse 1 an Ephrathite now those two words are not Similar. First of all, Ephraim was one of the one of the sons of Joseph uh, and received an inheritance. I put a map on the back there for you. I love geography. And so just to point out where Ephraim was, so it says that he was from Mount Ephraim. It doesn't, and so it says, so you see Ephraim right in the middle here, one of the smaller of the twelve tribes of Israel. And there's there's several key places in Ephraim. We're not going to talk about all of those today. We'll talk about one of them. But you look at your map, you see Shiloh was there, which Shiloh is where the tabernacle, the tent, was stationary for over 300 years, 350 years. And also you see Bethel there, which is a key place, and Ai. All these are notable cities in Ephraim, and you know how centrally located it is, Ephraim. And if you just look below that, you have Benjamin, and there you have Jerusalem, and to the east of Jerusalem, in the eastern part near the Jordan River, you have Jericho. So I just want to kind of give people, I like geography when I read places, about places I like to picture in my mind where they were. So he was uh, from, they were from the Mount, Mount Ephraim, which was a mountain range actually, high elevation that's where they're from, but it also said he was an Ephrathite. Now, Ephrathite means he's from Ephrath. It's not to be confused with Ephraim. And um, Eph, you know, the um, Ephrath was in the northern part of Judah. Again, look at your map. You see the, the part of right on the northern border of Judah is Jerusalem, and Ephrath was that's where that city was. As a matter of fact. Um, if, you, if you look over, turn to the left about two or three pages to the book of Ruth. And this kind of gives you an identity of where Eph, Ephrath was. If you look in Ruth chapter 1, let's go down just to verse 2. The name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife Naomi and the name of his two sons, Malin and Chilion. Notice this, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah, so Ephrath was in Judah, and so that's, where, that's really where um, the key players, Elkanah and them, are from. They're Afri- actually from that er- northern part of Judah, but they're, but they're living now in Mount Ephraim. So I know that's just minor details, but if you like details, you'll like that. So let's go back to our lesson. So they were Ephrathites, and so we're going to follow the outline. Number one, Elkanah, the they were Ephrathites from the region of Ephraim. And um, tells you where their, where their inheritance was located. And in number C, under one, he had two wives, Hannah and Peninnah. Peninnah had children. Hannah unable to have children. Now, it has to be said, polygamy was a common practice, a cultural thing, but God never... God never endorsed it, God never commanded it, never was God directing it, but it was a part of the way they lived, and generally, when you had more than one wife, it created conflict, just like if you had more than one husband, it would create conflict. Um, As with, remember, uh, Hannah and, or and Sarah and Abraham, and, and how that they're, they are the um, conflict that came about there and you have the same kind of conflict here there's going to be a great tension between these so that, so people wonder well why do they have two wives there and my, my answer is because every man wants two mother-in-laws no that's not really why they had two wives but it's just <laughs> it's just the way it was and it usually caused some problems so let's look in verse 3 if you would it says in verse Three. And by the way, the, the cause of their tension, and we'll get to this in a moment, was the matter of children. Hannah had no children and Peninnah had children. Verse 3, And this man, talking about Elkanah, this certain man, this man went up out of his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice unto the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. Now why did they go to Shiloh? Because Shiloh was where the tabernacle was. Before this, the, the movable... Tent, the place of worship that Israel had after, under Moses' leadership. It would just move from place to place to place and God would lead and it would, you know, they'd follow the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. But when it went to Shiloh, it stayed there for a long period of time. So every year they would go to Shiloh to worship. And it says in verse 3, And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. Now, we're not going to really get into this today, but if you know anything about this story as you read on, the sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were evil men. They were very wicked men. And it was known that they were wicked. It was was commonly known that they were wicked. Eli was the high priest. His sons were wicked. And one of the things that stands out to me, though, about Elkanah is this. He went every year to Shiloh to worship. And the fact that the high priest... And his two sons were not really where they should be spiritually, did not prevent him from faithfully going to worship. It says something about his character. You know, you've probably heard people say, you know, well, I'm not going to go to church because there are hypocrites there. Well, we don't go to church to see the hypocrites. We go to church to worship God. And just because someone is not where they should be should not prevent us from being faithful to God. That's just an excuse that people use sometimes But to his credit, Elkanah, every year, faithfully did as he was told. He went to worship. Now, hold your finger there, if you would, in 1 Samuel chapter 1, and go to the left to the book of Deuteronomy. And let's look in Deuteronomy chapter 16 for a moment. Deuteronomy chapter 16, and just one verse that kind of gives some clarity or direction to what we're talking about Deuteronomy 16:16 16, 16. This is about the various feast days that Israel observed and it said Deuteronomy 16:16 16, 16, Three times in a year shall all thy males appear before the Lord thy God in the place which he shall choose and it gives us through three times in the feast of unleavened bread and in the Feast of Weeks, and in the Feast of Tabernacles, and they shall not appear before the Lord empty. In other words, they're going to bring sacrifices, and it goes on and details that. So there were three times every year that every male was required to show up at the temple, the tabernacle, and those three times were the Passover. And the Pentecost, which was the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Tabernacles. So, so when it tells us, back to 1 Samuel chapter 1, when it tells us in verse 3, this man went up to his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice. That's what every man was to do. Every person was to do that, you know. Again, when you read in the New Testament, in the Gospels, there were synagogues in every little village. Almost all the little villages, yet there were certain criteria for Jews to have a synagogue. But these weren't, there weren't synagogues here in the Old Testament time. They began during the, later in the Old Testament time. But So they would go to where the temple was, to the tabernacle was. Of course, when da, under you know, David and Solomon permanent fixture the temple was built Solomon's temple but now they're at the tabernacle and it's at Shiloh so that's why they went to Shiloh by the way my wife and I've been to Israel twice and the second time we went um, they have a tour you know you're going to go certain places but I requested you know does anybody know where Shiloh was and our uh, tour guide said yes and so we went to Shiloh and it was an amazing place to go. We walked around there for hours. We brought home a bunch of little pieces of pottery. It was, Cause you could tell it would just been a place where all kinds of people had been for a long time. And that's because that, t- that tent sat there for hundreds of years. Now they've made Shiloh one of the main places they stop at. But in those days they didn't. There was a small little welcome center, et cetera, But it was a fascinating place to see just to stand on that place and see that's where that tent sat for 300 years. And every year these families would come. And come by the thousands there to, to observe Passover or whatever the time was. So that's, that's what's happening here. It's a testimony to Elkanah's faithfulness in verse 3. Every year, yearly he went up to worship. And in spite of the fact that there was some wickedness going on there. Now verse 4, it says, and, and when, the time was, when the time was that Elkanah offered, they came to bring their offerings, he gave to Peninnah his wife and to all her sons and her daughters portions. So we, said, we saw up earlier in verse uh, 2 that she had children. Here it tells us she had numerous sons and numerous daughters and when it came time to offer it the father the husband Elkanah, would give portions verse 5 but unto Hannah he gave a worthy portion for he loved Hannah but the lord had shut up her womb so if you're looking in your notes there under e the offerings were given and it, it kind of explains this and you can we're not going to turn to the old testament and look it up but on certain offerings What they would do is they'd bring whatever it was, the the lamb that was being slain and killed, whatever it was, and and they wouldn't actually slay it. The priests would do that, and they would offer this. And so a certain part, this certain part of that would go as a burnt offering, but then a certain part of it would go to the priests and to their families. That's how they lived. They didn't have jobs, they didn't have that was their job, the ministry of the sacrifices. But then there would also be portions that would be given to the family of the person that brought them. And if you read about it in the Old Testament, you could see that family members, it was like a feast. You'd bring your sacrifice, sacrifice it to God. The priest would get his portion, but the family would have their portion. And so as the father and the husband, Elkanah is giving out these portions. And he gave out portions to Peninnah and her children. But it says that he gave in verse 5. He gave her a worthy portion. He gave her more than enough, more than usual, because of the great love he had for us, her, for Hannah. And he loved her because he loved her, but also verse 5, the last part of verse 5, but the Lord had shut up her womb. She couldn't have children, so he gave her more. And I think it's because he loved her, yes, he loved her. But also the fact that he was sympathetic, you know, to the pain, the emotional pain of this. And as we're going to take the next step in the verse, the, one of the sources of her pain was she couldn't have children. And she had Peninnah, who was uh, a wife also to her husband, who had many children. And so this creates the great struggle. And, and the language in verse 6 I think is significant. It says, but the Lord had shut up her womb. Now why had he done that? And I think, I think this is all a part of God's plan. God is going to show himself strong because a woman and a man who cannot have children, after a long period, and this was a long period of grief and, and, and a sorrow and agony and praying, that God's going to answer their prayer with in a great, unusual way. When I think about this, I think about uh, the, the parents of John the Baptist, you know, similar. They prayed and prayed and prayed, could not have children, past the years of having children. And God blessed them with a child, but more than a child. John the Baptist, Jesus said, was a, never been a man born of woman greater than John the Baptist. And so here again, we're going to see a great answer to this prayer, and it's going to be Samuel, who was such an outstanding leader. So everybody with us so far? We're kind of just getting an introduction to the place and the people and I hope this is uh, meaningful to you. Now now let's begin to read about verse 6, this struggle that uh, Hannah had. And it says, And her adversary, the Lord had shut up her womb and her, referring, of course, to Hannah, her adversary, and it doesn't tell us who that adversary was, but we know it was Peninnah, the other wife. Her adversary provoked her sore For to make her fret, because the Lord had shut up her womb. So this this other wife, Peninnah, who had children, is just antagonizing Hannah. In verse 7, and as he did so year by year, talking about when uh, Elkanah led the family to go to Shiloh and worship. As he did so year by year, when she went up to the house of the Lord... So she, talking about Paninna, provoked her. Therefore she wept and did not eat. So this is a source of great, great sorrow. And uh, year after year, and we don't know exactly, there's speculation about how many years that was, but year after year, and if she's going year after year, she's got all these, you know, Paninna's got all her children, and. And Hannah doesn't have any, it. it'd be bad enough to be in that state, but she just she's got this, she's got this other wife who's just antagonizing her, tormenting her, accusing her. Now, I had a thought about this, and I just want to mention it to you. I want to I clarify when it's this is what I think, and it may not be what the Bible says for sure, but this is what I think. If you if you notice in verse. Um, two it says were he had two wives the name of the one was Hannah the name of the other was Peninnah and the thought I had was I wonder if Hannah was his first wife and the Bible doesn't say that but normally in the Bible when someone's mentioned first it was because that was the first one in the line and I personally believe that I actually did some research about that and and a lot of Jewish writings are convinced that Hannah so Hannah was probably I'm not saying it was for sure Hannah could have been his first wife and and again Jewish writers not Bible writers just people in the Jewish religion Hebrew writers say that the reason he married Peninnah was because Hannah could not have children Now, I'm not saying the Bible says that because it doesn't, but it makes sense to me that he married Hannah. He loved her first. She was the first wife. He loved her. She couldn't have children. He wanted uh, descendants, you know. He wanted children, sons that could carry on his family, and so it it could be that that's the reason he married Peninnah. So we're not sure about that, but it's worth considering. But always keep in mind, Just because we think it may be right and just because some extra-biblical person said it was that way doesn't mean that's not the same authority as the Word of God, right? So we could live and die without knowing that and we'd just be fine. But anyway, so um, in verse 7, she provoked her, therefore she wept and did not eat. And verse 8, then said Elkanah, her husband, to her, Hannah. Now these are interesting words. Hannah. Hannah. Why weepest thou? And I can just hear her saying, duh. (laughs) I'm weeping because I can't have a child, and I'm weeping because that other wife of yours won't leave me alone. Why weepest thou? And why eatest thou not? I mean, this was feast time, right? They're having a feast. Why won't you eat with us? And why is thy heart grieved? And I put in the notes just a simple statement in number 2C, Elkanah tried comforting Hannah but didn't understand her grief. He wasn't even on the same page at all. Why, are you, why aren't you eating? Why are you weeping? Why are you grieving? And then this, this statement here is a classic, the last part of verse 8. You talk about a man that's out of touch. Am not I better to thee than ten sons? And I can just hear, no, you're not. Now, I'm not always going to give you so much Things that could be, but I'm going to give you another thing that could be. These same Jewish writers, I've a lot of research on this. They, they claim that, they believe that Penina had ten sons. And then when he says, aren't I better to you than ten sons? That would make sense if that's true. Again, it doesn't say that biblically. But if that is true, and I'm not saying it is true, but if that is true then we can see how long this period of grief has gone on in Hannah's life when she could not have children and wanted to have children and, and, and yet Peninnah keeps having these children, keeps tormenting her by it. Very interesting things to think about. By the way, this is another an- antidote and I've read this many times in my life of study. One of the reasons that women so wanted to have children and were so grieved, Jewish women, when they were barren is because every Jewish woman wanted to be able to be the one who gave birth to the Messiah. And so they wanted a son for more reasons than just to have a son. Maybe my son will be the promised Messiah. Just something to think about. So in verse 9 it says, So Hannah... Rose up after they had eaten in Shiloh and after they had drunk. Now, Eli, the priest, sat at the seat, sat upon a seat by the post of the temple of the Lord. There, so we see the scene. They've been offering their sacrifices. The rest of the family's eating. She goes here to where Eli is. In verse 10, it says, And she was in bitterness of soul and prayed unto the Lord and wept sore. She's in bitterness of soul of soul and she's praying and weeping and we'll talk about this more next week but this was not just the kind of praying that we might pray sometimes you know for some need it's just what it wasn't just a little shed a little tear she's she's wailing she's weeping she's agonizing she can't get over this she wants to have a child and God has not made that possible and, um, and so we see this vow in verse 11. And this is where we'll, we'll kind of wrap things up here in verse 11. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if thou wilt indeed look on the affliction of thine handmaid and remember me and not forget thine handmaid, But will give unto thine handmaid a man child. Then I will give him unto the Lord all the days of his life. And there shall no razor come upon his head. Now there's a lot packed into that vow. We'll talk about this vow a little more next week. But one thing that's packed into it, that's embedded in it, is Hannah saying, if you give me a child, I'll not just raise him like any other son. I'm going to raise him a life of dedication, a life of separation. It's really the vow of a Nazarite. A vow of a Nazarite, which means I'll never touch anything having to do with the fruit of the vine. No, no never touch. You know, usually a vow of the Nazarite in the Old Testament was a short-term vow. But Samson, it was a lifetime vow. And with, with him, so she's going to raise him not just like anybody. She's going to turn him over. To, the, to really to Eli and the high priest, and he'll, his whole life will be devoted to, he'll be a Nazarite dedicated to God. By the way, Elkanah, I didn't mention this earlier, but Elkanah was a descendant of Korah, which was a tribe of Levi. And as a tribe of Levi, the men in the tribe of Levi would be, the Levites, could, would serve uh, from the time I think they were 30 until they were 50. So she already, because he would, if he given, if God would answer her prayer and give her a son, he would already be a Levite. He would already serve, could serve from the time he's thirty to fifty. But that's that's this changes the dynamic, and she's saying, I don't want just a son that would serve you from the time he's thirty to fifty. I want a son that'll serve you from the time he's an infant, all of his days. That was a part of her vow, part of her commitment uh, to God in this. In this matter so so let's just think about make some applications uh, today As with maybe you have a question or comment before we do this anybody have a question about what we've covered I feel like we've covered a lot in a short period of time but I really wanted to get the introduction to the people to the place to what's going on the dynamics that were at play before uh, Samuel was born um, anybody have a question Yes. like the why not all that doesn't understand about Then the last sentence tells us he did. Yeah, he He was a typical husband that was in the dark and really it's true a lot of times as husbands and wives as men i'll say from our vantage point that we really don't understand the burden sometimes that our spouse has why it means so much to them why does this mean so much you know what i'm saying and i and and to him this we don't know you know we're not we're not going to psychoanalyze him but it's but really, her behavior is raining on their parade. I mean, they're coming to worship. They're coming to offer sacrifices. They're coming to a family feast. This is the most important day of the year, and here you are just boo-hooing. <laughs> you know, so I would just say, you know, get over it. No, <laughs> Right? So, but it's an interesting thing. It really is an interesting thing. Well, down under the questions and discussion... Just, just to kind of emphasize a couple of things in the few minutes we have. The first one is, um, you know, just the importance. I just want to put a plug in for the importance of, of biblical history and geography, you know. Um, I'm, I'm not obsessed with history and geography, but I like it, you know. My wife will tell you, we've had many vacations where I've led my family in weird places because I wanted to see it because I wanted to see what it was like you know what I'm saying um, but I, so I have this interest in history and geography but it helps put things in place where these places were so I just so I just encourage you I like maps you know use your maps when you read about a place find out where it was in the bible B, you know what is this passage think about Elcana what does this passage say about the value of consistent worship every year. You know, it reminds me of Luke, in Luke's gospel, where it talked about how uh, Joseph and Mary, when Jesus was 12 years old, went up to Jerusalem from uh, Nazareth to Jerusalem at the time of the feast, as was, this is the language, I think it was, as was their custom. It's a good thing to have custom that you're going to be faithful. Faithful to the house of God. Faithful when you feel like it. Faithful when you may not feel like it. Faithful to the house of God. See, like Hannah, we sometimes struggle with God when God withholds something we really want. And God doesn't always give us what we want. And He doesn't always give us what we want when we want it. So... So how should we handle that? What can we learn from Elkanah and Hannah about that? Any